Now that Absalom has been permitted back into the city of David, he gathers his army, secures his conspiracy, and moves even closer to setting himself up as the illegitimate tyrant, lawgiver, and king. This is the 32nd sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our all covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel in chapter 15, the first 12 verses, the first 12 verses, 1 through 12. As we read of Absalom's revolt, by inspiration of God, this is the word of God unto us this morning. And it came to pass after this, that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so, that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And it came to pass, after forty years, that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode at Agisha in Syria saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said unto him, Go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of a trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went two hundred men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. And Absalom sent forth Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilho, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Apostle Paul speaking to magistrates, Romans in chapter 13, again reading from 1 through 5. Romans chapter 13, 1 through 5, by the same Spirit, speaking of the magistrates and their duty before God, by inspiration of God, the apostle says this, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also 
for conscience sake. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day with all of its warnings and all of its lessons. Now that Absalom has been brought back into the city of David and has achieved his goal of being brought before the king, Absalom is now poised to take the kingdom for himself. And so as soon as Absalom thought the timing was right, he hatches his plan to take the kingdom from David, from David who was his father, but moreover from David who is also God's man, the king. And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. This was clearly a military expansion by the king's son, which also signaled that Absalom had loyal followers from Israel who looked to him as a leader of the people. And yet he was, as we learned last time, an illegitimate ruler, an illegitimate leader. He hadn't had the prophet's anointing, nor did he have the testimony of God as God's man. God never said, Absalom is my guy. Absalom is my man. No, he said this about David, but not about Absalom. What he did have, what Absalom did actually have, was optics. Absalom only had an outward show without the legitimacy needed to be blessed of God or provide good for the people. And by Absalom's rebellion to David, a legitimate ruler in his own right, He designated himself as illegitimate. He delegitimized himself as God's man. And therefore, he could never be blessed by God. Now, while his army might have held him in high regard, which obviously they did, at the end of the day, that really didn't mean a thing. Just because you're held in high regard by men doesn't mean anything. It's God who we look to. Without the blessing of God, it doesn't matter who is on your side. Solomon says this, perhaps even thinking about his, his own brother's rebellion. He says in Proverbs 11:21, and then he repeats it in Proverbs 16:5 in the same way. He says, though hand join in hand, in other words, if whenever there's a conspiracy, though hand joined in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished, but the seed of the righteous shall be delivered. And truly, David was the seed of the righteous, a great type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So without the blessing of God, it doesn't really matter who's on your side. We are not told, however, whether or not David knew about Absalom's army, but it doesn't seem as if Absalom was trying to hide anything. Perhaps David even might have thought, well, this is my son, and you know he has men following him. He is, of course, slotted for the throne. So maybe he didn't even think about it. Perhaps it was commonplace that the king's son would begin to set himself up with his own army, his personal militia, since he might someday be the king and have to regulate an entire army. Normally, what Absalom was doing was not an easy task. And yet, as a consequence of his beauty and popularity, it doesn't appear as if Absalom had any trouble in raising an impressive force such as this. Notice he had... he had. People following him, chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Later on, we see that he had even more men. He had even more men to run after him. So it was not really an easy task to muster such an army. A force of such magnitude also took a, a considerable amount of money. Chariots and horses, in addition to 50 foot soldiers, was indeed an expense. Not only was there the need to purchase these weapons of war, but salaries had to be paid. The men had to drive the chariots. The chariots had had issues too. They needed to be repaired. They needed to be purchased. 
all of these soldiers of Absalom needed to be financed in such a way, one way or another. Now, of course, the scriptures don't tell us exactly how Absalom accomplished such a feat. The importance here is that he did. He did whatever the way he had money, he was able to muster such a force. Now, let's consider for a moment Absalom's resolve. Notice verse 2. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. Now, the fact that he raises up early, he gets up early, maybe even before dawn, shows that here's a man committed to a goal. This is a man committed to his end goal. Here's a man who is striving for influence, maybe even for excellency, but sadly from evil motives. He is unlike the king at this point, David, since David relaxed in a time when he should have been fighting. But Absalom, on the other hand, rises up early to launch his insurrection. And this insinuates that often the wicked are more diligent than the just. And this is a very sad testimony of the Christians. The problem with the modern day Christian church is that the wicked are more diligent than the just. Christendom today is generally lazy when it comes to building the kingdom, but when it comes to building their own kingdom, they are very much like Absalom. Remember, Absalom was here building his own kingdom. It was all about Absalom. Jeremiah, in the second chapter of Jeremiah, in his prophecy, in verse 11, God says this about the wicked. He says, Hath a nation changed their gods which are no gods? In other words, has the nations of the world, have the pagans of the world, changed their allegiances to their gods? When in fact, they are no gods? These are not real gods. Hath a nation changed their gods which are no gods? Well, my people... My people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. So for the most part, Christendom has a lazy streak. Now in order to accomplish his goal, Absalom positions himself beside the opening of the gate. And the opening of the gate at that point was a very strategic place. It mattered little if he arose in and of itself. He had to be in the right place at the right time in the early hours of the day in order to be effective. Right place at the right time. Diligence, fortitude, resolve, tenacity, timing and positioning, coupled with a vibrant support structure like his army, is what gave Absalom the edge. This is what the Christian community needs. Diligence, fortitude, resolve, tenacity, the right timing and the right positioning, coupled with a vibrant support structure working as one man. That is what gives us the edge. Here's a man committed to getting what he wants. The question that we ask ourselves is, what do we want? Oh, we want the wicked not to be wicked, but do we want to do anything about it? And at what price? What cost? Now, to stand in the opening of the gate had two important functions. Number one, everyone that exited the city on their way to the day's chores and responsibilities had to pass through the gate. It was a place where everyone would be. Here's Absalom putting himself right in the middle of the mix, conspicuous in the face of all of Israel. He positioned himself in the gate so that the people had to pass by him. And by this time, of course, he was a force to be reckoned with anyway. He was already positioning himself. He had an army. He was the king's son. But not only was he the king's son, not only was he the king's son, 
but he was well-liked, which made him popular. He also was seen as a man who was committed. He raised an army. He had people under him. And he had the position of the impression that Absalom and the king had reconciled. He gave the impression that David and him were once again reconciled. Secondly, to stand in the gate of the city was the place where judgments were made. It was a very strategic position. It was a type of public courtroom where people would go to seek counsel on this matter or that matter to seek some justice from the king or from the king's appointed deputy. Absalom was very savvy here. He stations himself at the opening of the city gates as a judge for the welfare of the people. He was there precisely to interpret the law for anyone that would come for judgment. He was there also to intercept anyone that sought for King David to adjudicate a matter. This was a planned, calculated strategy. Notice verse 2 and following. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate, and it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And when they said, Of Israel, he said, Okay, let me talk to you about the matters that you have which are important to you. So consider the answer of Absalom in verse 3 to those that came to the gate for judgment. See thy manners. Notice what he's telling them. See, thy manners are good and right, but there is no man who is the deputy of the king to hear you. So Absalom begins by coercing others. He actually begins with a lie. He says, there is no one here to listen to your complaint. Now, that may not have been true. Perhaps there was a deputy ready to hear the people's cases, but Absalom ran interference. He intercepted that deputy so that the people not look for the deputy, but seek Absalom instead, who was ready and willing to help. In fact, as you know, he was popular. Let's go to the king's son. I don't want a deputy appointed by the king. I want the king's son. The problem here is that Absalom was interposing himself between the people and the king without any justification or legitimacy. He was not an appointed magistrate. Self-appointment, and which is what he did, he self-appointed himself as the judge. Self-appointment does not carry any legitimacy. Also, there was no reason for Absalom to interpose between the people and the king since the king was not oppressing the people. King David was still a righteous king. Interposition is only validated by a duly appointed lesser magistrate, either of the civil realm or the ecclesiastical realm, and Absalom had neither position. He was simply the son of the king. The Hebrew expression of this part of the verse seems to insinuate that Absalom is telling the people that since they are low-born peasants, David is really not interested in hearing their cases, And there is no one of a lesser office that will hear their complaint. But I'm here. I'm here. The king's son. I will listen to all of your complaints. So he implies that he's willing to stoop to the needs of the common folk of Israel as a minister to the people for their good. In other words, he wanted to be seen as a man of the people. What he should have wanted was to be seen as a man of God, first and foremost. Then he would have been qualified as a man for the people. But he wanted to be seen as a man of the people. Secondly, 
Absalom did not actually care to give a just sentence, it seems, whenever the people came to him with a controversy. He simply wanted to please everyone so that they would come to respect him as an ally to their cause. Note his words that he gave to the people of Israel that came to the gate. See, thy manners are good and right. How did he know they were good and right? One has to ask, was that really the situation that everyone that came to Absalom their matters were just and righteous? Was that really the case for everyone that came to the gate for counsel? Could Absalom readily declare that all the matters that came to him were good and right? That's statistically impossible. Were there not any of those matters that were sinful or self-seeking or just plain wrong, which Absalom would have to rebuke or redirect if he was really seeking to judge without respect of persons? Surely that is the case with all matters of judgment. But Absalom was not concerned with justice. He was concerned with pleasing the people. He was a man-pleaser. He was concerned with winning the people to his side by agreeing with them no matter what the issue. What is so ironic at this point is that Absalom is now guilty of the very same thing that he was angry about concerning his father respecting certain persons. So while David may have been guilty of partiality, Absalom is guilty of hypocrisy. Now in verse 4, the word of the Lord gives us a glimpse into the mind of Absalom. Verse 4, Absalom said, moreover, and here is his mind speaking. This is really what he wanted. This is his motivation. Oh, that I were made judge in the land that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me and I would do him justice. Absalom here seems to be speaking of himself concerning his sought-after desire that he would judge the people righteously. Now, in this confession, we are introduced into the man's innermost desires. He wanted to be judge. Amnon's premeditated murder was not justice. It was murderous intent. It was premeditated vigilantism. How could now Absalom say, oh, I'm, I'm prepared to give justice? This is the hypocrisy of the man. In his deception while at the city gate, he wanted people to think of him as a just man. He was self-deceived. His destruction of Joab's barley field was also a problem. It was an act of, of intimidation. It was an act of manipulation. Was that just? You see, his was a move to secure a position and then to grab power for his own elevation to the throne. And yet, in his deluded state, he thought that he could bring justice. We do not read anywhere at this point that he's praying before God. He's not asking God for the slightest help or direction. The slightest implication is not given here from Scripture that Absalom was trusting God, that he was praying to God. This is conspicuously omitted. Neither is there any mention that Absalom asked for any human counsel from any of the priests. Here's a man who's doing everything unilaterally. He was trusting in chariots and horses, his foot soldiers and his own cunning to achieve his desired goal of a royal takeover. But before he could challenge his father directly, he had to gain the support and trust of the people. And his plan worked. The people began to regard him to the point of paying him homage. But when the people came to him, remember, Absalom Of course, he wants to be king. He extends his hand, a fellowship to them, gives them a salutary kiss of brotherly love and friendship in verse 5. 
man came to him to do obeisance. He put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. This was brilliant. Absalom wanted the people to love him to the point where they would respect him and then they would do anything for him. Even if it meant rebellion against the throne. He didn't want them to look at him as an ivory tower, unreproachable ruler, but as a friend and a trusted confidant, even even a military companion, a man who had their best interests in his own interest. In fact, the Hebrew word for kiss in verse 5 insinuates a military connection of reconcilability. The kiss was a mode of attachment implying a connection with, with his army, with weapons, that they would reconcile their goals together. Some translators interpret the word as a treacherous kiss with the idea of military camaraderie. Now, if this is the case, then the scriptures are telling us that these people were willingly conscripting themselves to Absalom's army for the overthrow of the kingdom, whether they knew it or not. Verse 6 confirms the fact that Absalom's plan worked. Notice, And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom, notice this phrase, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He won their loyalty. The idea that Absalom stole the hearts of the nation of Israel is very telling. V. Philip Long explains it this way. He says, winning the people's hearts indicates more than gaining their affection. As the heart in Hebrew signifies the core of one's being, including one's intellectual faculties, the people found Absalom and his proposal convincing. Absalom's initial plan was to position himself as a reformer rather than a usurper, but a usurper is what he was. If he had launched a revolutionary coup against the king at this time, his plan may not have been successful. It might have backfired since David too was beloved of the nation. Absalom had to be beloved as well. He had to bribe his, his way in. He had to bide his time until all the people were with him more than they were with David. Very calculated. Very much planned out. And so Absalom waits. Now the scripture says this. He waited for 40 years. Now the scripture seems to indicate, well it does say that in your King James Version, that's what it says. That he waits 40 years. Now if this is the case in which I can tell you it is not, but if it is, here's a man with incredible patience. 40 years? Waiting for 40 years? A man of sheer will and focus? He knows what he wants and he's willing to wait to get it. But this too, just the fact that he waited, no matter how long he waits, he waited until the proper time had elapsed. But this is a lesson for us. In our modern culture, we want everything now. We believe that we should get it now without the patience that is necessary, waiting, sacrifices involved to bring it to pass properly. Now, the actual time that he waited was not 40 years. It was four years. Since by this time, Absalom's power would have waned and the king might already be dead or at least willing to pass the throne to his son Absalom. We also know that David's entire reign as king was a total of 40 years. How could it be 40 years? So this number 40 depicting Absalom's waiting period makes no chronological sense at all. The actual time, the actual translation, when you look at the Hebrew, is four, not 40 years. 
And yet that too is a considerable amount of time to wait and wants a revolution. Now, Adam Clark unravels the discrepancy. He says this, There is no doubt that the translation here is corrupt even though it is supported by the Vulgate, which is not a translation you want to have support you. But the Syriac translation uses the Hebrew word for four and not forty. Josephus too has the same translation. Theologian and Bible translator Theodoret also translates the word as four, not forty. Now here's the problem. If you look at the actual Hebrew root word, it is the number four. And what happened was, by misusing a small Hebrew character, now you know, when you look at the Hebrew letters, they've got these little, little, little nuances. When you look at these Hebrew characters, there's a misuse of a small character in the translation. The word then can become 40 if that little doohickey there is used wrongly. So it seems more likely that Absalom waits four long years before executing his plan to overthrow the kingdom. Now think about it. If David's whole reign is 40 years, how does Absalom wait 40 years after David's already king and Absalom's a young man? It doesn't make chronological sense. So it's four years, which is quite unfortunate that we thought it was 40 years. But then when we think it through, it can't be. It's, it's, it's absolutely impossible. So he waits four years. A considerable amount of time. During the time of Absalom's exile, his time after he returns to the kingdom and then the short time standing in the gate, during that time, he builds his reputation among the people and garners strength, power, and influence in order to achieve his desired end goal. And once Absalom is ready and everything is set in place, he makes his move. And it came to pass after four years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode at Gesher in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. Now, we are not entirely at this point sure if Absalom actually had to fulfill a vow in Hebron. Now, this may or may not have been an excuse to finally assemble his army and commission them for the overthrow of the kingdom. Now, if indeed Absalom did vow a vow to the Lord while he was in Hebron, this shows that he understood the severity of making a vow and he was obliged to fulfilling it. If there was initially a vow that Absalom made when he was in exile, could it be that while he was in exile, he vowed a vow to overthrow the kingdom? That certainly makes sense. And maybe now he was going to fulfill that vow in his vow to overthrow the kingdom and take it for himself. His vow was actually to overthrow the kingdom from David. So hearing the request of his son Absalom, David dispatches him to Geshur without so much as a question. And the king said unto him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Now David's response is quite telling, even perhaps painfully telling. Was he or was he not aware of Absalom's dealing with the people? Was he so detached from the affairs of his kingdom that he couldn't see the writing on the wall? He is now stricken in years. We know that. But it appears that David was once again clueless as to what was really going on. Perhaps he knew what was going on and he thought this was just normal. But could it be that at this point his shepherding skills seemed to be diminishing? Perhaps once they were sharp, Perhaps now they were dulled a bit. Maybe he was too trusting. In the past, he seemed to be clueless as to Joab's hatred against Abner. 
So he did nothing to intercept Joab's intentions. He was obviously clueless when he sent Tamar to Amnon, not being able to discern the real reason behind his son's request. He was clueless as to Absalom's hatred for his brother and his love for Tamar, which led him to seek vengeance for his sister. He was also taken by surprise when the woman of Tekoa trapped him with a fabricated story to bring Absalom out of exile. He was even clueless as to Uriah's devotion to the Lord and his army companions to think that he could bribe Uriah the Hittite into going home to his wife. Now what does that tell us? It tells that even the king, even a man after God's own heart, can miss some of these things that are so obvious to others. But I think David's biggest blunder was that he was clueless as to the repercussions of his sin. Because everything that is happening to David as a result of his lack of insight as to the situation at hand is because he remained inattentive to Nathan's declaration. So everything that is happening to David is a result, a direct result of his lack of insight as to the situations at hand. Now one might think and ask, well, how could this be? David was beloved of the Lord. He was beloved of the Lord. And we know that from the day he lived till the day he died, he was God's man. And he will forever be God's man. However, when the beloved of the Lord, whether it's David or you or me, whenever the beloved of the Lord fails to follow Yahweh's moral and judicial law, God brings chastisements, which are orchestrated by degrees depending on the degree of the offense. If this could happen to David, it could happen to any of us. It puts us all on notice. David's problem did not begin with his adultery. His problems began with the multiplying of his wives. When he multiplied wives to himself, that's when the problems began. That was the direct violation of his, his commission as the king. The moment he began to walk down the slippery slope, that road to disregard the commandments of God, the more he was blinded by his sinful passions. David is now going to experience once again the bitterness of sin and the sorrow that it brings. Absalom is now locked and loaded for a full assault on the kingdom. But rather than going to Hebron, he uses this occasion to assemble his army. And that was his plan, I believe, all along. And this is a clue as to whether or not he really had to fulfill a vow. Or maybe he did vow, and this was part of the fulfilling of the vow, to assemble a kingdom against the king of Israel. But before he actually launches his attack, he first needs up-to-date intel. So he sends out spies. Notice verse 10a, But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, Notice where the spies are situated throughout all the tribes of Israel. You see, Absalom wanted to calculate his support. He wanted to make sure that when he actually launched his revolt, it would be successful. This is a dominion tactic that he may have learned from the history of his people. Moses, Joshua, and some of the judges employed spies to scope out the situation before they attacked. You see, Absalom is a man of history. He was able to go forward in the future because he had a knowledge of what had happened in the past. All Absalom is doing is following that strategy of history. But in his case, his conquest is the kingdom of Israel rather than the pagan tribes of the nations. And once again, we are taught the importance of unifying the forces, planning an attack, and gathering intel before any excursion is executed. Now, once the army is readied and the spies are strategically situated, 
Absalom gives them their marching orders. In verse 10b, we read this. As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. In other words, Absalom is now the king. And it's it's curious and quite brilliant, I would imagine, that this is in Hebron. With an army of 200 men, Absalom publicly declares himself king in Hebron. Because Hebron is where David was ordained. It was in Hebron where David originally was proclaimed king and where he first reigned for the first seven years of his life as king. The fact that Absalom is having his name declared as king in Hebron is a direct insult to the king, his father. What is curious about verse 11 is it appears that Absalom's army might have been unaware that they were about to revolt against David. They perhaps at this point thought that maybe David was handing over the kingdom to his son. And we read this in verse 11, And with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. This Absalom, crafty, a crafty man. Because the word simplicity means integrity. They went out in their integrity. They followed Absalom faithfully, loyally, with the integrity of an army of God. But it seems as if they didn't really know what they were doing. It seems as if these men followed Absalom thinking that he was doing the king's bidding as the captain of the guard. In order to secure the situation, Absalom goes to Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was David's counselor. While he was engaged in his holy duties of sacrificing to the Lord, most likely to gain his support as well. Now, you notice the cunning of Absalom. He wants ecclesiastical credit. He wants the clergy to back him up. That's how important the clergy was in those days. Now that everything was out in the open, and Absalom had made his move to overthrow the kingdom, David is apprised of the conspiracy against him by his own son. The words of Nathan the prophet at this time must have been ringing in the king's ears after hearing that his own son, what a bitterness, what a, what a betrayal, what a bitter pill that he had to swallow. That bitter pill that he had to swallow that his own son had risen up against him. Note again the prophecy of God given by Nathan against the sin of David in Second Samuel twelve ten. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Ringing ringing in the king's ears. But before we examine David's response, we should ask, why did this conspiracy flourish? Were the people displeased with the giant killer David, the shepherd boy and the defender of the city of God? Were they really displeased with him? Was Absalom such an incredible political and military figure that the people simply decided to trade David for Absalom? Well, Adam Clark gives some possibilities. Notice what he says. Quote, It is very difficult to account for this general defection of the people. Several reasons are given. David was old or afflicted and could not well attend to the administration of justice in the land. 
it does appear that the king did not attend to the affairs of state and that there were no properly appointed judges in the land. Job's power was overgrown. He was wicked and insolent, oppressive to the people, and David was afraid to execute the laws against him. There were still some partisans of the house of Saul who thought the crown not fairly obtained by David. David was under the displeasure of the Almighty for his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, and God let his enemies loose against him. Absalom appeared to be the real and was the undisputed heir to the throne. David could not, in the course of nature, live very long, and most people are more disposed to hail the beams of the rising than exalt in those of the setting sun. No doubt, some of these causes operated, and perhaps most of them exerted less or more influence in this most scandalous business, end quote. So now that the conspiracy is launched in its entirety, David must now flee for his life or be assassinated by his own son. We will visit the rise and fall of Absalom next when we return to our exposition of the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.